Chapter 7 of Cherry and Violet, A Tale of the Great Plague. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Cherry and Violet, A Tale of the Great Plague by Anne Manning. Chapter 7 Signs in the Air. And now the glorious restoration at length arrived, and tis incredible what a spur it was to trade, and how the mercers and drapers could hardly supply their customers fast enough with expensive goods, and how the tailors and seamstresses worked all night, and hairdressers sold their elwigs, and hatters their hats, and horse-dealers their horses good and bad for every one was for pouring out of london across our bridge at least as far as blackheath oh what a busy what a joyous sight it was all the streets from the bridge to whitehall were hung with tapestry and the windows filled with ladies the lord mayor's cooks set up a gay tent in st george's fields to prepare a refection for his majesty the livery companies in their various rich dresses of crimson violet purple and scarlet lined the streets on one side and the trained bands on the other bursts of gay music were intermingled with cheers and laughter everybody seemed in tip-top spirits that the king was coming we let our windows for a good premium to some of the grandees but had a good view ourselves of what was going on from the leads now there would come along a troop of two or three hundred or more in cloth of silver doublets then four or five times as many in velvet coats with attendants in purple then another party in buff coats with cloth of silver sleeves and green scarves others in pale blue and silver others in scarlet by and by six hundred of the livery on horseback in black velvet with gold chains then the trumpeters waits city officers sheriffs and lord mayor in short there was no end to the splendour and glory of that day for we had hardly rested ourselves after seeing them all go forth when they began to come back with the king in the midst oh what shouts what cheers what bursts of music and he bowing this side and that so smiling and gracious it seemed he said as if it must have been his own fault he came not sooner back everybody appeared so glad to see him but the ladies dresses oh how grieved i was sure they were resolved to make up for the dullness and decorum they had been restricted to during the protectorate for indeed they seemed to think decorum and dullness went together and should now be thrown overboard in company the henrietta maria dress i had so complacently made up for our wax doll was now twenty years behind the fashion fit only to laugh at and what had taken its place i thought fit only to blush at for a moment when the party that had hired our first-floor window had thrown off their cloaks i felt a dreadful presentiment that their characters could not be over good or else thought i they never could dress in such a manner only knowing who they were i thought again that can never be dear heart what can they be thinking of we shall have stones and mud thrown up at the window 
"'Sure, madam,' said I to the youngest and prettiest, "'you will catch cold at the open window. "'The wind blows in very fresh from the river. "'Will you just have this scarf a little over your shoulders?' "'No, thank you,' says she, "'shaking back quite a bush of fair hair "'and looking up at me with her eyes half shut "'as if she were sleepy already. "'Forsooth,' thought I, "'those curls are equal to a fur tippet.' and looking across at our neighbor's windows, I saw we need not fear pelting, for that all the other ladies were dressed just the same. Then thought I, oh, this is the restoration, is it? If you, fair ladies, provoke ill thoughts of you, you must not feel aggrieved if people think not of you very well. I disliked this symptom of the restoration from the very first, not that it had naturally any connection with it, the king had lived long abroad had become fond of foreign fashions but were the modest ladies of england therefore to give in to them then what the upper classes affect the lower classes soon ape i knew we should presently have mistress blenkinsop and violet trying which could wear the longest curls and shortest petticoats and look the most languishing the only difference would be that the one would become the fashion and the other make it ridiculous. Perhaps, thought I, I am growing prudish and old maidish. I am eight and twenty, but so is Violet. I have often thought that if the ladies of England had at this time been what they ought, a good deal of folly and sin that presently stained this reign would never have happened what could the merry glance and free word of a light young monarch break down barriers that were not tottering already what had mothers and teachers been about where were the lady fanshaws and lucy hutchinsons there must have been something wrong in the bringing up i can never believe all these fair young ladies were so good one day and so bad the next but the joyfulest event to ourselves on that glorious twenty-ninth of may was the restoration to his country and home of our excellent friend and lodger master blower he seemed to be rejuvenized by the general spirit of hilariousness for i protest it seemed as though ten years were taken off his shoulders and he talked of being soon replaced in his curacy but instead of that his friends presently got him a living in the city which took him away from us as there was a parsonage house but we went to his church on sundays and as he was not one of those who forget old friends or humble ones he would make my father and me sup with him about once a quarter and come to us of his own accord about as often, and talk over the times, which in some respects, as far as Sabbath-keeping and general morality went, we could not say were bettered. And now a shocking sight was to be seen at the bridge-gate, the heads namely of those traitors who brought about the death of the late king, and who richly deserved their bad end there they have remained for many a year a terror to all evil-doers it was in the spring following the restoration in the month of march that we and the braidfoots were taking our supper together on the leads the weather being very warm for the season when our attention was attracted by the uncommon appearance of the clouds which as will often be the case after much rain were exceeding gorgeous and grotesque 
Master Braidfoot was the first of us who noticed them, and cried, See, see, neighbors, cannot you now credit how lovers of the marvelous have oft-times set tales afloat of armies seen fighting in the air? Do not those two battalions of clouds, impelled by opposite currents, look like two great armies with spears and banners about to encounter each other? Now they meet, now they fall together, now one vanishes away, now they both are gone. And see, dear Hugh, cries Kitty, there is another that looks like a cathedral, and another like an exceeding big mountain, with a rent in its side, and out of the rent comes something that looks like a crocodile, with its jaws wide open. No, now it is liker to a bull, or rather to a lion. Very like a whale, said a man, as if to himself, on the top of the next house. It was Master Benskin's lodger, who wrote for the booksellers. Kitty started and lowered her voice, for we were not on speaking terms with him. However, she squeezed my arm and said softly, It really is becoming something like a whale now, though on which Master Braidfoot burst into one of his ringing laughs and cried, "'Why, Kitty, you give it as many faces as the moon. What will you fancy it next?' "'I wonder what it means,' says she, very gravely. "'Means,' said her husband, still laughing, "'why, it means we shall have some more wet weather, so we'll put off our pleasure party. See what a red flame the setting sun casts all along the city.' About a week after this, our neighbor, Master Benskin, gave my father a little pamphlet of four leaves, writ by his lodger, the title of which was truly tremendous. It was this, Strange News from the West, being a true and perfect account of several miraculous sights seen in the air westward, on Thursday last, by diverse persons of credit, standing on London Bridge between seven and eight of the clock. Two great armies marching forth of two clouds and encountering each other, but after a sharp dispute they suddenly vanished. Also some remarkable sights that were seen to issue forth of a cloud that seemed like a mountain in the shapes of a bull, a bear, a lion, and an elephant with a castle on his back, and the manner how they all vanished. Well, said my father, turning the leaf, is it dedicated to Mistress Braidfoot? Here seems to be much ado about nothing, I think. Nothing or something, said Master Benskin, laughing and jingling his pockets. It has enabled my lodger to pay up seven weeks' arrears, so it's an ill wind that blows nobody any good. The trifle has had a run, sir." "'So this is the way books are made, and stories are vamped up,' said my father. "'Truly, it makes one serious.' But a little time after, a rumour was repeated in the shop that did indeed make one serious, to wit that the plague was in Holland, and would very likely come across to us. However, though the following year it did indeed rage very badly in Amsterdam and Rotterdam, yet it crossed not the water for another twelve months or more, and as we had no such things as printed newspapers in those days, such as I have lived to see since, rumors did not instantly spread over the whole nation as they do now. 
Howbeit, at the latter end of November 1664, there really were two cases of plague in Long Acre, which frightened people a good deal. A third man afterwards died of the same distemper in the same house which kept alive our uneasiness, but after that nothing was heard of it for six weeks or more, when it broke out beyond concealment. At this time Master Benskin's shop window was full of small books with awakening titles such as Britain's Remembrancer, Come Out of Her My People, Give Ear Ye Careless Daughters, and such like, many of them emanating from the pen of his lodger in the attic, and with these and Lily's almanacs he drove a thriving trade. Violet was sitting with me one morning when Mark suddenly entered, and seeing her with me, lost his presence of mind directly and forgot what he had to say. She on her part, being just then in mourning for one of her brother's children, for whom I am bold to say she had scarce shed a tear, he being a humoursome child, particularly disagreeable to her, fetches a deep sigh, and with a pretty pensive air takes up her work, rises, mutely curtsies to him, and retires, on which he, after a minute's silence, says sadly, Violet is as beautiful, I see, as ever, and I was grieved to find he still thought so much about her. Just then my father enters, and Mark, of a sudden recollecting his business, exclaimed, "'Oh, uncle, here is a capital opening for you. "'Tis an ill wind, sure enough, that blows nobody any good. "'I don't know why you should not do a good turn of business, "'as well as ourselves, by being agent for the sale of these patent nostrums.' "'And thereon pulled out a parcel of bills, "'headed, Infallible Preventive Pills Against the Plague. "'Never failing preservatives against infection.' sovereign cordials against the corruption of the air the royal antidote and so forth no boy no said my father putting them by one after another as he looked over them time was when i should have thought it as innocent to laugh in my sleeve at other people's credulity and turn a penny by their delusions as yourself and many others that are counted honest men but i am older and sadder now to the best of my belief every and all of these remedies are counterfeits that will not only rob people of their money but peradventure of their lives by inducing them to trust in what they have bought instead of going to the expense of proper medicines a solemn time is coming my own time may be short and whether I be taken or whether I be left, God forbid I should carry a lie in my right hand or set it in my shop window. A customer here summoned him away, and Mark, instead of departing, sat down beside me and said, What think you, Cherry, of this approaching visitation? Are you very much affrighted? Awestricken, rather, I made answer. I only fear for myself along with the rest, and I fear most for my father, who will be more exposed to it than I shall. But I feel I can leave the matter in God's hand. I wish I could, said poor Mark, sighing. I own to you, Cherry, I am horribly dismayed. I have a presentiment that I shall not escape. My wife, continued he, with great bitterness in his tone, he commonly spoke of her with assumed recklessness as 
his old lady. My wife has no sense of the danger, mocks at it, defies it, refuses to leave her house and her business, come what may, and tells me with a scoff I shall frighten myself to death, and that Ralph Denzel shall be her third. Don't you hate, Cherry, to hear husbands and wives, even in sport, making light of each other's deaths? Her grossness was offensive to me, and I said in a low voice, I do. And if I die, as die I very likely shall, pursued he hurriedly, you may do me a kindness, Cherry, by telling Violet that I never— this was insupportable to me. Dear Mark, I cried, why yield to this notion of evil, which may be its own fulfillment? God watches over all, with proper precaution, and with his blessing we may escape. No one knows his hour. The brittle cup oft lasts the longest. Many a casualty may cut us off before the day of general visitation. I, he replied, with a sickened look, but I had a dream last night, and just now, as I came through Bishopgate Church, a crowd of people were watching a ghost among the tombs that was signing to houses that should be stricken and to yet undug graves. Watching it, said I, did you see it? Well, I rather think I did, said Mark, but am not quite assured. The press was very great. At any rate, I saw those who evidently did see it. My wife has had her fortune told, and the fortune-teller avouched to her she should escape, so there's the ground of her comfort. To make doubly sure she wears a charm. For me, I'm neither for charm nor fortune-tellin'. If I die, I die, and what then? I've often felt life scarce worth keepin', only one don't know what comes after and with a faint laugh he rose to go away. I said, Mark, Mark. What is it? he said, and stopped. I said, Don't go away with that light saying in your mouth. He said, Oh, and smiling, opened the door. I said, looking full at him, Faith in God is the best amulet. It is, he said more gravely, and went out. Presently my father came in to supper and sat down while it was making ready, near the window, looking out on the river quite calmly. Our large white cat sat purring beside him. Stroking her kindly, he said, Pussy, you must keep close, or your days will be few. They've given orders now to kill all the dogs and cats. I believe, Cherry, we are as safe here as we should be in the privatist retreat in the kingdom, for infection never harbors on the bridge. The current of air always blows it away, one way or the other. But, my dear, we may be called away at any hour, and I never sleep worse of a night for bearing in mind I may not see another morning. But I rest all the peacefuller, Cherry, for knowing you will never be in want, though this poor business should dwindle away to nothing. Master Benskin and Hugh Braidfoot know all about my little hoard, and will manage it well for you, my daughter. And now let's see what is under this bright little cover. Petitoes, as sure as London Bridge is built on woolpacks and he ate his frugal meal cheerfully, I thinking in my mind, as I had so often done before, that the firmest heart is oft found in the littlest body. 
End of chapter 7